you know, I was sitting in the back as we were singing and, and I was looking through the text that we've been preaching through in Revelation. And, and we know theologically, doctrinally, and, and confessionally that from cover to cover, this is all the word of God. And we believe that and we affirm that. And yet there are those times wherein, in, in some Bibles, the letters are read. Other times we look in the Old Testament, it says, the Lord says, and whether you have read letters or not, when we come to these letters that we're, we've been studying in the book of Revelation, it, it struck me afresh tonight, this is Jesus that's talking to us in these letters. Paul wrote under the authority and inspiration of the, the Holy Spirit, so we read it with the authority of God speaking through the Apostle Paul as he's writing the letters to the church at Ephesus, or Philippi or Colossae or Corinth. But this is the eternal Son of God writing these letters to the church, saying, This is what I want my bride to be like. It's reason enough, I think, for us to pay rapt attention to these letters. And we come to a church tonight that deals with the issue of the peacekeeper. And I'm sure if you're like any family around, there's a peacekeeper in your family. There's somebody in your family who hates conflict, who does everything possible to avoid conflict, and when tension and conflict arises in the family, this is the person that's trying to just negotiate the compromise, negotiate the truth, bring everybody together, and, and make sure that no one's mad at anyone else. Well, as, as Christians, we would say that peace has a lot to do with who we are, after all. Our Savior is known as the Prince of Peace, yes? And as Christians, we would say the gospel has a lot to do with peace. But that peace has to do with our peace with God, not the peace between truth and error. And what we find with the church in Thyatira is that they were a church that was seeking peace so much that they were willing to, even some of the faithful believers in Thyatira, tolerate and allow false teaching and error to creep into the church maybe so that things wouldn't be as uncomfortable for them as they would be if they drew hard and fast lines. So Jesus writes this letter to this church in Thyatira to provide his church with the blueprints of an uncompromisingly faithful bride. If you're not already there, take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 all the way down. The longest of the letters to these seven churches is going to go all the way down through the end of chapter 2, verse 29. But as you turn there, what do we know about Thyatira? Well, it's modern day, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that because I'll butcher it, but there it is, A-K-H-I-S-A-R. That's where this, this church was. That's, it's, it's modern province there in Turkey, there in Asia Minor at the time that Jesus was writing the letter. Uh, we know that it was a, a border city between Pergamum and the Syrians. And here's the thing about Thyatira. It had no geographical advantage to it. It's like living in Frisco or Salina or Plano or anywhere in the surrounding areas. There's no cliffs, there's no mountains, it was just, it was kind of exposed, it was out there. Well, one of the things that that produced was a, a, a very skilled and effective military. In fact, Thyatira also became known as a, a place of the, the, the main production of bronze armor in the region. They were known for the burnished or their polished bronze, which has something to do with Jesus' introduction, as we'll get there momentarily, but that was due to their, their military prowess as well. They wanted to be well protected, and so the, the guilds, the artisans, they worked well with bronze there and produced a, an armor that went throughout all of the, the Roman Empire there and helped equip the, uh, the troops. 
What else do we know about Thyatira? What was the center of the wool trade? You may have heard Thyatira before we get to Revelation chapter 2, and maybe in your mind you've already gone there, and that's back in Philippians, or in Acts rather, as as Paul is planting the church in Philippi, there was a, a lady there whose name was Lydia, and it was Lydia of Thyatira, and she was known to be a purveyor of purple goods. Thyatira was one of the, the, the center uh, places of, of business for the wool trade during the time. So Lydia came from there, and she worked with wool products, and she was specifically working with dyeing these wool products purple, which would have been a, a luxurious and an extravagant color for people to have, and she was uh, selling those. And, and it's thought that Lydia may have been one of the, the ones that hosted the, the church there in Philippi in her home as it was planted there by the Apostle Paul. So Lydia came from this region in Thyatira. Like the other cities that we've talked about, this was also a a city where there were a lot of temples dedicated to other gods. Uh, Apollo was one of the main gods in the region of Thyatira. And so this is the region, this is where this church is. It's one of the six cities on that trade route, one of the seven cities, rather, on that trade route that Jesus is writing these letters to. So writing to Thyatira was strategic because it would not just stay in Thyatira, but Jesus knew that that letter would go from Thyatira to these other areas in the surrounding region. What do we know about the church in Thyatira? Well, we know about as much as is on that screen, and that is we don't know much about the church in Thyatira. Like the other churches that we've studied, it was probably planted by the Apostle Paul when he was based in Ephesus for those three years because of its proximity to Ephesus there. But aside from that, we we just don't know a whole lot of it. Lydia, being from Thyatira, possible she may have had a hand in the start of this church as well Uh, but we can't point to a specific book or any other information about this city or this church with that in mind we pick up with jesus greeting 218 to the angel of the church in thyatira we've been together we've talked about this the last two weeks at least but the angel was who the angel was the the pastor of the church in thyatira the messenger angelos also in greek didn't just translate angel but also messenger So Jesus is writing to the church, to the leader of the church, the pastor of the church, saying to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, and then his introduction, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of God. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. He's identified as the lamb. He's identified as, as with, with other labels, other greetings, even in these seven letters. But this is the only time in the entire book that he identifies himself as the son of God. Why? Well, a couple things. Number one, it identified his deity, his authority, because this is not a pleasant letter that Jesus is about to write to this church. So Jesus is establishing his authority. Why does he have the right to write this letter to this church? Who does he think he is? Well, for starters, the son of God. I think that's a pretty good place for him to begin. (laughs) But beyond that, I mentioned Apollo was one of the main gods in Thyatira. Legend held that Apollo was the son of Zeus. And so writing to this church in Thyatira, whose main god was Apollo, Jesus said, Apollo's nothing. I'm the son of the god. I'm the son of the only true god. And so Jesus, again, establishing his authority, his power, his uniqueness. Then he goes on and says, who has eyes like a flame of fire? Daniel 10. There's a vision that Daniel the prophet sees of the pre-incarnate Christ there. And he has eyes that are glowing like fire. It's the idea of Jesus having the ability to see all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He's writing to a church in Thyatira that from the outside may have looked okay. 
But Jesus saw what was really going on in this church, and that's what he was communicating to them. He saw through the exterior, saw through the facade that they might put out there with his eyes that were a flame of fire, and then his feet like burnished bronze. I mentioned earlier that Thyatira was known for the production of bronze. One of the things that they would produce is these bronze foot coverings for the soldiers. Jesus is, again, establishing his authority and his superiority over anything and everything that would be associated and commendable about this city. This is, is not a, a, a gentle introduction to the church in Thyatira. And we'll see why as the letter unfolds. But before he gets to the confrontation, he starts, and there is some commendable things about what's going on here. And that's where we go in verse 19. He says to this church, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus says, I, I, I know your works. And again, works there, if you remember back, the, the works were, sorry, I just went backwards on my slide there as I was trying to swipe out. Technology is great when it works and not so great when it doesn't. But the works were the lifestyle, the behavioral pattern of this church. And so Jesus is saying, I know what your life is characterized as. And he's speaking to the faithful believers there. And then he describes the works and he gives the, the works specifically. He says this, your love. So the faithful believers in Thyatira were not like those that were in Ephesus. Remember, Jesus had written to the church in Ephesus saying, you have left your first love. Those that were faithful to Jesus in Thyatira, he said, I, I know your love. You love God and you love others. This was not the church in Ephesus in that regard. But he says, I know your love. And secondly, I know your faith. In other words, I know your faithfulness, which is interesting considering the rest of where he goes in this letter. But there were some, at least, in Thyatira there were some that were faithful to Jesus. There were some who were not going to compromise. There were some that were holding fast to Christ, steadfast in their conviction. These two concepts of love and faith show up multiple times in Scripture. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncirc uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This church was doing that. They were loving Jesus. Those that were faithful in the church were loving Jesus, and they were faithful to Jesus. So their works, their love, their faith, and then third, their service. Their service was another element of the works that Jesus was commending this church for, and that service is a natural overflow of their love. Because if we love God, what's going to happen? What's the second greatest commandment? Love God and love others. So if the love for God is there and Jesus was commending them for that, then it would be a natural overflow of that love for God for them to be loving one another well and serving one another well. And Jesus was commending their service on top of their faith and their love. And then finally, and your patient endurance. This is a difficult place to, to be a believer. There's pressure from the outside. There's pressure from these, these temples and these shrines and the imperial cult of emperor worship that's going on there. But there was also pressure from the inside in this church to compromise and join in this, this false teaching that we'll find out about here momentarily. And Jesus was saying there were some there that would not bow the knee. There were some there that, that would not compromise, that would not yield. And he's saying, I'm commending you for your patient endurance. And then finally in verse 19, and he says this, and I know that your latter works exceed the first. That's, that's the, the greatest part of this right there. In other words, he's saying to this church, you, you faithful believers there, you're growing in your relationship with Jesus. You're, you're growing in your understanding Jesus writing to them. You're, you're growing in your, your faithfulness to me. 
This is not a church that was stagnating, at least in some areas. These were faithful believers that were actually being sanctified. And Jesus is saying, I see that your, your latter works exceed the first. Peter writes this in 2 Peter 1.8. After listing all of these qualities that we should supplement our faith with, virtue and godliness and self-control and so forth, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, y'all, that's one of our battles in this culture that we find ourselves in, is it's easy to be a cultural Christian in North Texas. It's not hard to fly the flag and say, yes, I, I, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But this is what defines Christianity. This is what Jesus is looking for. He's saying, I'm not looking to find out, did you walk an aisle? I'm not looking to find out, did you pray a prayer? I'm not looking to find out, did you raise a hand when all the heads were bowed and eyes were closed? I want to know, are you growing in godliness? That's what defines a healthy believer, and that's what Jesus is commending this church for. And y'all, as we think about being a church and a church plant, I want us to be a church that if Jesus showed up and, and walked among us, so to speak, the way that he's doing with these lampstands, that he would look at us and say, you know what, church? You guys are growing in godliness. Your latter works exceed your first. Our first point tonight is that. I want us to be a church that's always looking to grow in godliness. Always be looking to grow in godliness. Until we breathe our last and go home, there will be an opportunity for our latter works to exceed our first. There's a, a golf coach whose name is Hank Haney. Maybe you're aware of him. He got his start actually out here. In fact, when I was growing up out here, I would go play golf at Hank Haney Golf Ranch down the, the street there in Frisco. It's where I, I, I first picked up a golf club and, and I would go to youth camp there and everything. Hank Haney rose through the ranks and he finished coaching me and then he went on to coach a guy a little bit less than me, Tiger Woods. You may have heard of him. He's, he, it was a step down, but he went to go do it. I, I, gave him, I said, Hank, you can go do that. That's fine. No. But Hank became Tiger Woods' swing coach. And, and he wrote a, a bi an autobiography about his time afterwards. And in the autobiography, Hank said what drove him nuts about working with Tiger Woods was that Tiger would be winning tournaments. And this was back in his heyday before the accident and everything else and, and the train wreck that became the, the, the fallout of all that. He would be at the top of his game winning tournaments and just lapping the field in the process. Like nobody was even close to his talent level in his peak. And yet, they would show up on, on Monday at Tiger's house and he'd be like, Hank, we're going to the range. I need to tweak my swing. And Hank Haney's going, You've, you literally have the, the greatest swing in the entire world. Why do you, you're winning tournaments and you're blowing people out of the water. Why do you want to mess with your swing? But Tiger was such a perfectionist that he always was thinking to himself, I can get better than I am. I can get my swing more in tune than it is. I can change this. I can speed up my club head. I can alter the impact. I can increase my spin. I can shape my shot better. I can... He was always out there. Even though he was the best player in the world, he's always thinking to himself, but I can get better. Y'all, as we think about us as a church, that's the mentality I want us to have when it comes to godliness. And here's the thing about that. We will only be corporately as godly as we are individually. We will not be any more of a godly church corporately than we are as individuals within the church. And so that looks at you and that looks at me and that says, okay, we have to be pursuing Jesus and growing in godliness as individuals. So that corporately, we will be a church whose latter works exceed the first. As we plant this church, we can be sure there are going to be attacks from the enemy. 
and as those attacks come, one of the attacks that's going to come is this temptation to neglect our personal godliness and holiness. To think that it's not that big of a deal. If you go out on a baseball field, there's nine players on the field at any, any given time, and the ball can only be hit to one of them at a time, and yet all nine have to be ready with every pitch. And if one's not, it puts the whole team at risk. Yo, we as a church always need to be on our toes when it comes to godliness, growing in Christ-likeness. And so when we think about our personal walk with Christ, when we think about our individual walks and our, our godliness, I want you to think about these things that are up on this screen right now, reading your Bible. How are you doing with that, right? Prayer. How's that going? Battling sin. If you're married, working on your marriage. Parenting. You've got kids at home or, or your kids have moved out. Evangelizing. And this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but I want us to think about all of these and how we're doing as individuals and recognize that if, if we're neglecting these areas individually, it has a negative impact on us as a church corporately too. But because we are the, the body of Christ. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we think about our godliness, I want us to think that our individual godliness has an impact on our corporate godliness. I would hope that all of us would want to say, we want to be a church that as, as Jesus came and if he were to walk among us as a church, that he would commend us for being a church whose latter works exceed her first. Always be looking to grow in godliness. Well, Jesus continues from there and he now gets in the kitchen of this church in Thyatira, but not in a pleasant manner. Pick up in verse 20. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. The condemnation begins with this statement, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jezebel, if, if you've read the, through the Old Testament, that name should strike a chord with you. This was the wife of Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And Jezebel was right there participating in all of that wickedness, seducing and, and being instrumental in leading Israel astray into the worship of, of Baal. She was one of the, the leading instruments in getting Israel to, to leave off their faithfulness to God and, and pursue this false god, Baal. Jesus says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Well, is he talking about the Old Testament character? Or is Jezebel a, a representative that Jesus is using? Is, is, is Jezebel a figurehead that Jesus is using to point to the modern problem facing this church? And I think it's that. I don't think he's saying you have this fan club of the Old Testament character Jezebel. I think he's saying you have a Jezebel in your midst. And he goes on to describe her, a, a prophetess. Someone who calls herself a prophetess. Teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So there was some woman in this church who had put herself forward as a prophetess, saying that she had a message from God, that she had revelation from God for this church. 
and she was using that platform and people were listening and following and she was leading them into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality in the Old Testament account of Jezebel is, is not directly linked to her per se. However, the worship of Baal in the Old Testament was a licentious worship practice that would have involved cult prostitutes and other things like that. So it's, it's not a stretch to see how Jesus went from Jezebel as the figurehead of this, this prophetess that's there to then her promoting sexual immorality within the church, this licentiousness within the church. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if your works exceed the first. In other words, it just as long as you identify as a Christian, live whatever life you want to live. That's the message that was being propagated there in, in Thyatira. But beyond that, also encouraging them to eat food sacrificed to idols. Let's talk about that for a second, because we, we mentioned that last week too, and maybe you went in your mind to the idea in, in Paul's teaching even that said, hey, you know what? Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That, that verse, by the way, is not in the context of you um, eating McDonald's to the glory of God. I mean, can you eat McDonald's to the glory of God? Yes. Yeah, sometimes it just hits the spot and, and it's just good. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. You, you don't actually believe that. You're just healthier than I am. And that's fine. But that, that verse is in the context of Paul saying, look, some of you are going to think that it's wrong to eat the food from the marketplace that you purchased that was first a, a while ago offered to an idol before it ever got to the marketplace. Others of you are going to say, you know what, that idol that was over here that that food was, that's not even a thing because we know that there's no such thing as an idol. I'm going to buy the food from the marketplace and take it to my home and prepare it and I'm going to eat it. Paul's saying whether you eat or not, whatever you decide to do there, do everything that you're going to do for the glory of God. Okay, That's Paul's teaching on eating food sacrificed to idols. This is a different situation and so it was also in Pergamum because these, these feasts were just that. They were feasts that were, you remember I told you guys that there were these guilds there in Thyatira where the Bronze Guild was one of them? Well, there were others as well. And all of these guilds had a patron deity, a false god that was their god. And they would hold feasts. And if you were a part of that guild or wanted to be a consumer of the, what that guild was offering, you went to these feasts and you ate the food that they offered there at the feast. Well, guess what was happening at the feast? Not in the marketplace, but there at the feast. They were offering the food in the presence of all those there eating to the God as they were eating the food. That's different now. You see the difference there? Now we're participating in the act of worshiping through offering this food to the God before we sit down and eat it. Jezebel was encouraging the church to participate in those things. Encouraging them to eat the food sacrificed to idols. Perhaps even trying to twist Pauline, the, the, the Pauline teaching that, hey, you can eat. Paul even said it's okay. And Jesus is confronting, saying, you've got this woman. She's a false teacher. She's leading people into sexual immorality. And she's also causing people to worship false God by eating the food sacrificed to idols. And he says, and you're tolerating her. You're, you're allowing, you're, you're permitting this. You're, you're going along with it even. See, the sin here was graver even than that at Pergamum. Because of Pergamum, they had false teaching in the midst of the church in Pergamum. But Jesus doesn't go so far as to say you're tolerating it. Here, he's saying to this church, look, y'all are putting up with this. You're okay with this. You know what's going on and you're not doing anything about it. You're allowing it and some are even participating in it. He goes on in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Apparently, God had sent a messenger to this woman 
and some think it was even John previously, whoever it was, she had been given the charge, she had been confronted over the sin, and Jesus, God had called on her to repent, and she had refused. So he goes on and he says, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, and I will strike her children dead, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I will throw her onto the sickbed. Sickness in the scripture was often an instrument of God's judgment against people. If we go to 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus, or, or Paul, rather, writing in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about those that, that would take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he said this there, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Why? Because they were being judged for disobeying God's commands when it came to taking the Lord's Supper. They were eating in an unworthy manner. Okay? And so there was the, the judgment from God there upon them. Also, possibly 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, where it says there that the, the man in sin in 1 Corinthians 5 was delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It's possible that that was an illness, a sickness that was being used there by God as an instrument of judgment. Either way, with Jezebel, God was going to punish her. He was going to judge her through an illness. But then there's these two other groups, aren't there? There's the adulterers who he's going to throw into great tribulation. The adulterers who he's going to throw into to great tribulation. And yet the adulterers are given another chance to repent. So these are the ones that they're not the faithful Christians that were commended at the beginning of the letter. But they're also not, as we're about to see here, the children of Jezebel who are all in with the false teaching. These are the ones that are kind of straddling the fence, that are tolerating Jezebel, that are giving her ear, but they haven't gone full bore to commit with her yet. But they're, they're in with her enough that Jesus calls them adulterers. He says, I'm going to give you one more chance to repent. I'm going to throw you into a great tribulation. The writer of Hebrews says that God uses discipline on those whom he loves. Here he still loves these people. He's disciplining them in order that hopefully they will repent of their toleration of Jezebel. But then there's the second group, and that's the children. He says, your children, the children of Jezebel, those that have already bought in hook, line, and sinker, them I'm going to strike dead. Does Jesus take his holiness and the purity of his doctrine and the purity of his bride seriously? Absolutely. When we see this, absolutely. There's no other way for us to look at this. And he says then at the end, I will give to each of you according to your works. That's not about reward, that's about judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Revelation 20, verse 12, John said, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had, what? What they had done. So when Jesus says, I will give to you according to your works, this is not reward, this is judgment. This is a serious confrontation from Jesus. Continuing our focus on the overall importance of the individual's relationship with Christ for the good of the overall body. Remember, we talked about our individual godliness has a bearing on our corporate godliness. We turn our attention now to the individual's need to constantly count the cost of true discipleship. I'll put it this way for point number two. Always be counting the cost of compromise. Always be counting the cost of compromise. This church had compromised and was actively compromising. And Jesus was confronting them. And it wasn't a pretty picture. Speaking of compromise, did you see that there was a local retailer, well, not just a local retailer, but a national retailer who people like to, 
I'll, I'll keep it vague, shoot things. You can get a bullseye by hitting the, this thing. You guys know what, who I'm talking about here, right? Yeah, the French, Target, maybe the, that pronunciation. Do you catch how much they lost this week in their stock? And it's probably more at this point, but $9 billion. $9 billion in one week. $9 billion in one week, and, and I'm glad that they did. You want to know what you can buy with $9 billion? Here's what you can buy with $9 billion. You can buy the Miami Marlins for $980 million. You want a professional baseball team? $980 million. Target lost, that's a ninth of what Target lost in one week. A professional baseball franchise, okay? How about uh, the most expensive home in America, which is in, Be in Bel Air, for uh, $500 million. $500 million. You can buy that with $9 billion easily, can't you? An original Da Vinci, if you wanted that, you could buy that for $450.3 million. Have yourself an original Da Vinci that you can hang up in your house. A super yacht, like a super, super, super yacht. Like you want the, the top of the line yacht, $600 million. You can get that for $9 billion. It's a drop in the bucket. You want a private island, that's only going to cost you $75 million. $75 million. We're not selling too many of those in Texas, but Lake Louisville, maybe out in the middle there, you could just... I think China's building one in the sea somewhere, so if you got that technology, you could build yourself. I'm sure you could get it for less than $75 million in Lake Louisville. How about Balmoral Castle, okay? Balmoral Castle, I didn't even know what that thing was, but it, apparently Queen Elizabeth liked to hang out there. You can get that for $140 million. I'm guessing it would be harder than just having $140 million to get Balmoral Castle, but that's what they've placed the, the valuation at. Private jet, and again, like the super yacht, like top-of-the-line private jet, $442 million. You can buy a private jet. Most expensive car in the world, $70 million for that. What car was it? I don't know. I, I, I drive a Corolla hybrid, okay? So that's where I'm at with cars, all right? Um, it, was a, it was a nice one. It was probably red. How about this? You can buy the White House. Balmoral Castle's got nothing on the White House. The White House is $380 million dollars. Three, no, sorry, $398 million. What's the point in all this? Well, here's this point. You can buy all of that with $9 billion. All of it can be yours for the low price of $9 billion. And you'll have some spending le money left over. But my point in that is this. The cost of the Christian compromising or the church that compromises is far greater than what Target lost in a week. It's far greater than missing out on any of those things that I just had up on the screen there. The cost of hearing Jesus look at us and say, you've compromised. You've fallen short. The cost of hearing Jesus say, I have this against you, is more than any of us can afford. And more than any of us can afford for this church either. We have to be always counting the cost of compromise. And again, just like godliness, that begins individually too. The writer of Hebrews writes in his warning passages to the church there, he writes things like this, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We need to hold fast to the gospel, lest we drift from it, to, to pure doctrine, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels, the Old Testament law, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation was declared at first by the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the stakes are so much higher for us than they ever were for Old Testament Israel if we neglect the gospel, if we drift from the gospel. We need to be careful not to drift. But that's not just individual, that's, that's corporate. We need each other in that process, and the writer of Hebrews understood that too. He said this in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Here's the corporate part. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see, church, how we need one another to make sure that we're not going to drift, we're not going to compromise, we're not going to fall away? One more, Hebrews 4.11, let us corporately then strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's that old mantra that's, that's there in the Navy SEALs, no man left behind, right? Church, there's no Christian left behind. We are going to do this together. We're going to be always on guard, always costing, counting the cost of compromise. These passages are not implying that a Christian could truly ultimately drift away to lose their salvation rather what these are are they're they're like guardrails we don't have them around here because we don't have mountain mountains around here but when you do go someplace with mountains you've gone up those windy mountain roads and and most of the time there's there's guardrails on the side and if you're like me you're not even going to get anywhere near that guardrail but every time you see that guardrail it's a reminder of the danger of drifting what these messages in Hebrews are, and I pray that that's what this letter from the church, from Jesus to the church in Thyatira is for us as well. That it's a reminder to us as a church of the danger of drifting. The church at Thyatira had rolled out the red carpet for these false teachers, and now they were paying the price because of their compromise. Jesus then provided a correction, or rather an exhortation to those that were still faithful. Look at verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. And that's how serious this compromise was. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, you're doing well, church. Those that were faithful, those that he had committed at the beginning, he's saying, I'm not going to add anything else to you. You're doing well. Only, he says, hold fast to what you have until I come. Keep going. Keep going pressing on. Stay the course. And as if to motivate them, Jesus gave them the longest explanation of a reward that he had given in any of the letters yet. Look down at verse 26. He says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star." to break that down for a second, verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. This is the contrast. Don't keep Jezebel's works and end up being judged for those works, but keep my works is what Jesus is saying. The one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Okay, this is part one of the reward for faithful believers. He will rule them, the, the nations that is, with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Jesus is calling us back to Psalm chapter 2 here. A messianic psalm. A psalm about the millennial reign of Jesus and the judgment and the authority of Jesus. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you hear the parallel there between that and what Jesus is promising to the faithful believer in Revelation chapter 2? This is a picture of the faithful Christian's future ruling and reigning with Jesus during the millennial kingdom. That we will be with him. Not in a, a sharing his, his glory. He is the, the glorious one. We're not co-regents in the sense that we're equal with him. But there is a sense that we are promised that we will reign with him and have authority over the nations during the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And, and he's promising that to these believers there who are suffering under the persecution of realizing that it's hard to be a Christian in such a dark place. And so Jesus is offering them this hope. But he says then in verse 28, and I will give them the morning star. I will give them the morning star. Do you know what that is? Or rather, who that is? That's Jesus. That's the promise from him there. Revelation 22, 16 Revelation 22:16 says, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright what? Morning star." So here Jesus promises the church in Revelation, the faithful ones there, "Stay the course and I will give myself to you. You will have me." That's way better than anything this world offers us. Way better than anything that compromise will provide for you. To have Jesus, and that's what we're after, church. That's what we want. That's what we're hungering for. That's what, what the greatest reward that we have is. It's, it's not all of the other trappings of heaven without Jesus. It has to be Jesus that's our drive, that's our focus, that's our hunger, that's our desire. And here Jesus promises the faithful church, we will have Jesus. Third and finally tonight, y'all, I want us to do this. I want us to always be looking to our future reward. Always be looking to our future reward. As we're pursuing godliness and we're battling compromise and, and counting the cost of compromise, this is what motivates us to do that because, y'all, that's hard. It's hard to be godly in this world. And it is hard to always be on guard against compromise. It is far easier to go with the, the flow. It is far easier to, to just slip in with the current of the world and just hold on to the label Christian and hope everything works out in the end. That is undoubtedly easier than what we're being called to do. So what keeps us faithful is this reward. What keeps us tracking is this promise that we will one day have Jesus. And that is what keeps us on the course. When my family and I left California, and so many of you in this room sharing this story, we had 21 hours of driving in front of us with five kids in the back of the car. Actually, my in-laws came with us, and so we split them up. <laughs> but we had 21 hours in the car from California. Day one, we were like, we're going to go 16 hours and hit Midland. And we made it. We got to Midland, day one. And we rolled in, and we went to sleep, and we got up the next day, and we drove the remaining five hours to, to get to our house. But you want to know what kept us going the whole time? Was not Midland on the drive. It was like we didn't really care to be there. It was just a stopping point. What kept us going was getting here. That was the thought. That was what was, what was worth it. That was what was worth the semis passing each other on two-lane roads that just makes you want to pull your hair out. You go, what are you doing? Pass him. Go faster. 
That's what sustained us, was this knowledge of where we were headed and what we were going to be finding when we got here. How much more should the thought of our future reward with Jesus motivate everything that we're doing, church? Cause us to, to, to long for him and to stay faithful to him. One more passage in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, we are running towards and after Jesus, and that sustains us. We're tempted by sin. We remember the cost that Christ paid for us. We're tempted to compromise because it's, it's easier to just fit in with the world, and we remember that we have a Savior who's called us, literally the church, the called out ones, to be in the world but not of the world. We're tempted to get discouraged because it's hard and we're under suffering and we remember that we have a Savior that went before us and suffered on our behalf. We think about everything this world offers us, right? Money, possessions, house, job, politics, whatever it is that can be our hope in this world. It's not that those things are, are inherently evil. It's not that at all, but they just, they're, they're not the, the, the ultimate. They're not the reward that we're after. Jesus is the reward. mentioned it a second ago. The word for church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means called out once. We are to be the ones that are called out from the world. And so as we think about being a faithful bride of Christ, looking to that future reward, looking to Christ, let's make sure, church, that we are here, but that we never lose our distinction, that we never lose our brilliance in the midst of the darkness around us. Peace and the Christian should go hand in hand. But not at the cost of our uniqueness and distinction as the pure bride of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reality that, that you have formed us and called us out from this world. And yet we thank you also, God, that you have left us here to do the work that you have for us to do. Help us to be a bright and brilliant lampstand, one that is distinct in this world so that people see a difference at Compass Bible Church. God, we want to be a place where, where lost are saved because they encounter the life-saving message of Jesus. They encounter the reward, the, the offer of eternity with Jesus, and they say that is far better than anything else this world could offer me. Reminded of the song, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. May that be the heart's cry of this church forever and ever, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.